Hello out there and welcome to the Fantasy World Order Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I am Pat Donovan, talking to you tonight on late night, October 14th, 2018. This is another solo episode and I've got a pretty full show for you guys for some off-season stuff. I'm going to look at some players that you may have forgotten about uh, due to injury um, that had incomplete seasons but showed some interesting skills relievers that could become starters in the 2019 season sort of uh, discussion analysis on the market's opinion on speed and power and whether it's correct and then last but not least uh, a piece i call trust the process which is you know guys that have shown some intriguing skills but haven't broken out yet and whether you should trust the process when it comes to these players so let's kick it off with the players that you might have forgotten about. And first up is Franchi Cordero. How could we forget about Franchi Cordero? Given his name, we could never really forget about him. But before we dive into what makes Franchi interesting as a player, we should point out that there's no clear path here. The Padres have an outfield logjam with Franmil Reyes, Hunter Renfro, Manny Margot in tow. But... Franchi's going to be a minimal investment in a 12-team mixer, even if that logjam clears. So, I mean, he's not going to take a lot to get. Now, the bet on Franchi is a power-speed bet. Uh, the, carrying, the, the carrying tool is certainly the power. A 48% hard contact rate. A He's number 13 in max exit velocity, number 14 in average exit velocity, uh, 23rd in fly ball line drive velocity, He's got the second longest homer of the year, in fact, uh, behind Trevor Story, 20th and 95 mile per hour hit percentage, and 28th in barrels per batted ball event. So, I mean, all of the StatCast data supports Franchi as a talented hitter when it comes to batted ball authority. So, all in all, that's very promising. Uh, the profile is sort of similar to a player we're going to discuss in a few minutes, which is Domingo Santana. Um, he should be a plus BABIP guy because of the authority with which he hits the ball and the fact that the batted ball profile isn't entirely reliant upon fly balls. I mean, he carries a pretty hefty line drive percentage. The ground ball fly ball mix isn't, you know, out of this world for power production, but it, it, it's it's good for BABIP. So when you have a player with a swing and miss profile like Cordero does, I mean, the weakness is obviously the strikeout rate. If you have the skills to post a plus, plus BABIP, you can probably get away with a few more ticks on that K rate uh, than other players can. He's also got promise on the base paths. He could be a 15-20 steal type. Um, he was 35th on the sprint score leaderboards. That's one spot in front of Mike Trout and one spot in front of Whit Merrifield, who obviously led the AL in steals this year. He was selected in the two early mocks with a ADP of 227. Um, but that's just across a couple of leagues. Uh, there are some leagues that went beyond that in which he wasn't taken. Overall, I would bet that he's probably a 250-plus guy, You know, maybe a little bit higher than that if the playing time path becomes clearer, maybe a little bit lower than that if it doesn't. But the type of player that you're going to take with one of your final picks in a mixed league going into next year. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think that the swing and miss is, is something that you have to be concerned about, and it is something that can potentially sink him. It's just that, that Babbitt profile makes it a little more likely that he's 
not going to be an entire entirely a zero in batting average. So yeah, I, I like I like Franchi. I liked him coming into this year. I, I thought that he was on the verge of something pretty special. And, you know, I think he could be like a 260, 255, 3015 type. Speaking of that type of profile, there's a couple of guys on this list that we're going to talk about that have that profile, as I mentioned, Domingo Santana. Um, Steven Seuss is another. He actually played a bit more than you might think this year with 272 plate appearances, over 72 games played, with five homers, six steals, uh, 220, 309, 369 slash. Uh, but just a year removed from a 30-16 season. He's still making a ton of hard contact at 44% with a really nice batted ball mix, 24% liners, a ground ball to fly ball rate that's near one. Um, The plate discipline also appears to have remained similar uh, with a 25% O swing, and he's actually raised his contact percentage and his swing and strike rate has fallen. So those are all encouraging signs. I mean, you still have the batted ball authority, and the plate discipline looks good, and there's even hints that maybe he's getting a little better there. Uh, it looks to me to be a case where Sousa just never got off the ground due to a variety of injuries, but still displayed a lot of those good skills that we saw from him in 2017. And, you know, there is the potential with the declining K rate and increasing contact that he's going to get a little better. Sousa's going even later than Franchi. He was actually not selected in any of the two early mock drafts. That strikes me as odd, considering the fact that Sousa's playing time path is much clearer than Cordero's. Uh, and really and truly, I mean, Cordero's realistic upside is basically Sousa's 2017. So, I mean, Sousa's a guy that's done it already, has the playing time, and yet he's going behind Franchi, who hasn't done it for a full year and doesn't really have a clear play- playing time path. So, I mean, unless the market shifts somewhat dramatically on Sousa, I suspect he's going to be a player I own a lot um, in 2019. Jesse Winker is another one. Uh, the reports are that Winker's going to be ready for spring training, but that's something you obviously need to watch. Uh, he's coming off a shoulder injury, and that injury, you know, I mean, no injury is good, but that, that one was particularly tough because it really looked like Winker was breaking out after a slow start. Um, from June 1st forward, six homers, 362, 495, uh, 465, excuse me, 554 slash, with more walks, 16% walk rate than strikeouts. His strikeout rate sat at 13%, and that's over a 156 plate appearance sample. Obviously, small sample size, but you know the strikeout rates and the walk rates have been really good since he's come up. Uh, and it was just, you know, is is the question is is the power real? Because Winker's a player that's also probably going to hit for a plus average, you know, and that's a 25 homer pace during that limited sample, and. That was supported by a 50-plus percent hard contact rate, a ground ball, fly ball rate of 1.2, which is better than where he was in 2017 when he first came up to the majors. You know, during that stretch, compared to the prior stretch, his pull percentage on flies and line drives rose 8%, and the hard contact on flies plus line drives rose from 41% to 59%. Now, you know, we're looking at a limited sample, but if you put Winker's limited sample during that stretch against the season-long leaders in those two, uh, which is fly balls plus line drives, he's up there with Christian Yelich and J.D. Martinez. Now, that's that's promising company, <laughs> obviously. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be those players, but uh, you can see where maybe 
I mean, going into the year, I was thinking that Winker could potentially be a minor power breakout, you know, like a 20-homer guy that could post a plus average and really good OBP and be an asset. And I think with that sort of company, you can see that start to come together and, and come to fruition perhaps in 2019. So, I mean, good stuff all around there. Uh, the question with Winker is whether the power is going to come and stay. Now, I mean, I think if he was in a ballpark like San Diego or Oakland, I might have a few more doubts. But he's in a plus power park in Cincinnati. You know, and with that, I, I think I see sort of the Daniel Murphy path here for Winker. Um, you know, obviously a little more accelerated because it took a long time for Murphy to break out. But, you know, the 20 homer, 300 plus average, um, you know, he's a better, he's a, he has more patience than Murphy ever did. Um, he's going to be in the middle of a good lineup or at the top of a good lineup. So there's a lot to like there. It, it, but I should caution you, he's not free. This is not Steven Souza. This is not Franchi Cordero. The market is aware and the market likes Winker. He's at a 205.7 ADP, so it's not expensive, but it's not what you might expect for a guy coming off a year where he hit seven homers and ended the year with a shoulder injury and has no real track record for power um, other than, you know, a 150-some-odd plate appearance sample. Now, that's not to throw cold water on that sample. I like what I saw. I, I like the player. It's just you shouldn't expect to get Jesse Winker cheap because it's not going to happen. You're going to have to pay up for him, relatively speaking. So that moves us to uh, Domingo Santana and his Brewers teammate Eric Thames. I wanted to do these two players together because they're two of Milwaukee's sort of forgotten men during their wildly successful season. I know Santana's had a surge during the postseason, obviously, uh, which you're all aware of. But, you know, for the most part, during the regular season, these two were kind of left in the dust as a result of playing time crunches. So Santana, obviously a disappointing year overall for a player that was somewhat highly, highly drafted. I know his ADP started to sort of sink back post-acquisition of Yelich and Kane, but it still was pretty high. I mean, I think he was floating right around 100, maybe 120, um, you know, at the max. But, I mean... Even in this scenario, there was a path where Santana had the opportunity to seize playing time, and it just never materialized because of because of his struggles. and And I think this might have been something of the human aspect, um, where he sort of struggled mentally. He pressed, he got sent down, and only came back up in September. You know, so I I do think based upon what's there in Milwaukee, Santana probably is going to need a change of scenery. And I do think there's a path for it. I mean, Milwaukee's obviously a club that's got some depth offensively. Outfield is a easy place to acquire veteran talent on the cheap. And they're going to need some starting pitching, or they're going to want to upgrade their starting pitching. I mean, I don't know. They're in the NLCS at this point. I don't know that we can say that they need it. But um, it's definitely their biggest need. And a player like Santana could certainly go in a package for a pitcher. Now, there are some encouraging things in a very limited September sample and also the minor league sample. It does look like Santana is starting to shift his profile a little bit towards fly balls. Now, you know, this is a numbers game and you're dealing with a sample that's not, you know, it, 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 it's not indicative of, of a definite change. 
especially with minor league data, you kind of have to be very careful with it. But Santana is a player that hit 30 bombs in 2016, and there was some skepticism whether or not he could repeat it based upon his bad ball profile. And you know, his tendency to hit grounders and, and not as many fly balls. He's he's got the he's got the line drive skill though, so the Babbitt should be plus. Well, now he's kind of lifting the ball a little bit more. It looks like, and if that's the case, he's a career 26% homer the fly ball guy. You know, if he's going to hit 40% fly balls, he's going to hit a lot of homers. Uh, and he's athletic enough to steal some bags. So again, you're looking at that like sort of 30, 15, 260 type hitter. And, you know, this is, again, this isn't Franchi Cordero where you're specking. This is a player that's done it already and has had the success uh, and has shown his upside. So uh, Santana is definitely a player that I've got my eye on. You know, he hit the ball harder this year, actually, than last year. He's got a 40% hard contact rate. You know, if he's going to add some flies, I, I'm very, very prom. I'm, I'm very, very intrigued by what Santana could do. Now, if you look at Thames, if you actually double his season-long plate appearance total, uh, he was at 278. If you double it, you're pretty much spot on with where he was in 2017, and that would be a 30. And you know, if you double his homer and steal numbers, he's at 32.14, which again is in that sort of territory that we're talking about, but. He's um, he's a player that dealt with the same sort of thing Santana did. He started the year, he got hurt, Jesus Aguilar comes in, sets the world on fire, and Thames' playing time declined and was sort of inconsistent from there on. He's a player that's got a pretty cheap option. There is the potential for a trade there with Aguilar basically seizing the everyday role at first base. Now, do they both get traded? Probably not, which is why I put them together. Um, but, you know, Thames has been a pretty productive player when he's played over the last two years. Um, he has been subject to hot streaks. I know that the K rate got worse last year. I know that the plate discipline dissolves some, somewhat. But I, I am willing to chalk that up to the sort of human element where, you know, he got into the lineup after three days off, he was pressing, he was a pinch hitter, blah, 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 blah. It becomes it becomes more difficult in that role. And we saw that with Jonathan VR, who you knew I was going to work into this podcast. But we, we saw that with him in 2017 where the Brewers didn't trust him. They started to sit him. His playing time was inconsistent. And everything went to crap from there on. You have to remember that these are human players and, and, that, and that they're subject to the same pressures and you, they're subject to human nature. It's, it's going to be more difficult to do your job if you're not doing it as often. It's going to be more difficult to do your job if you're, you're worried about receiving another opportunity to do your job. So I, I think with both these players, we saw that on a competitive team where their playing time sort of dissolved and became inconsistent, and they struggled as a result of it. And that makes them a potential buying opportunity. And if Thames returns to form and goes, you know, 30, 14, uh, 255, it, it's not the greatest profile. It's not the greatest skill set with any of these guys. But the fact is, when you can get them at an ADP of 250 plus, that's where that profile becomes useful. And particularly at first base, which, you know, sort of became you know, extremely top heavy. And then there wasn't a lot of juice in the middle. 
So, I mean, if you can get Thames going 30, 15, 250, you know, at post pick 250, that's going to turn a nice profit because we'll presumably be in the, in the middle of a lineup, whether it's a good or a bad lineup, who knows, but it, it's still a very intriguing profile. Okay, last in this section, I've got Danny Salazar. Um, the, the talent is evident and has always been tantalizing, but his role is very uncertain. Uh, are the Indians going to throw him back into the rotation, uh, despite seemingly having some, of, if not the best rotation uh, in baseball? Um, you know, is it going to be him? Is it going to be Bieber at the back of that rotation? Uh, is Josh Tomlin going to find his way there for the 17th consecutive year? <laughs> Or are they going to use Salazar to supplement some of their bullpen losses that are coming up? The latest reports are that Salazar is going to begin throwing in November, which would seem to put him on pace to return, uh, you know, around spring training and start the year with with the Indians. Uh, in any event, you know, I mean, you can go crazy speculating about this sort of stuff in October. I mean, he's not even throwing yet, but it's just he's he's got he's got a a tantalizing skill profile. He's got the ability to strike out batters at will, um, you know, and that's the type of player that can excel in a starting capacity or in a bullpen capacity. So it's a name to file away and keep in mind because he's he's basically been gone for a year and a half at this point. So he's going to be somewhat of a forgotten man at the draft table if you can get him. And he's a multi-inning reliever. He's going to give you strikeouts. He's going to give you great ratios. If he's in the rotation, he's going to give you the strikeouts. Um, the ERA and the WHIP might not always be what you want it to be, but when you've got that kind of strikeout profile, the ceiling is pretty um, safe. You know, he might be a pitcher that's going to have a four ERA and sort of fall into that Robbie Ray, John Gray range of pitchers. But he's also got the ability to get down around the mid-threes and post, you know, I'm not going to say 200 strikeouts because I don't think he's going to see that kind of workload. But, you know, 10-plus K per nine, 11-plus K per nine, that sort of production doesn't grow on trees from starting pitchers. And, again, when you have that sort of K profile, you're not as subject to the bad ball gods as the rest of the world is so salazar is a good segue because i want to talk about some relievers that might move into the starting rotations uh, of their teams in the offseason and uh first up i have a player that i've mentioned uh, quite a few times during the course of the season that i thought would eventually find his way into the rotation it never really happened he did open a few games but never got the opportunity to start a game and you know function as a starting pitcher, and that would be Matt Strom uh, of the Padres. Uh, to me, I, I see a starting pitcher. I think he's got the arsenal to do it, and he's on a team that really needs starting pitching. And the Padres, Padres are reportedly going to give him the opportunity to enter the spring as a starting pitcher. So, based upon his workload this year, he's looking at a at a starting pitching workload of about 110 to 130 innings, you know, with an increase. So he's probably not going to be a pitcher that would be on your team all season in a standard redraft 12-team mixer. 
But when he's in there, he can be very useful. I, I think he's between an 8.5 to 9.5K per 9 guy with good control. He'll be an asset in whip because he's a fly ball pitcher, and he's in a good park for being a fly ball pitcher in San Diego. So uh, it's a very nice profile. Um, you know, he's, he's left-handed, so the velocity plays up a little bit. He's, he's very promising. I've liked him since back before he came up with the Royals and had that excellent first season as a reliever. I think that Strom's got, I want to say, top 40-ish starting pitcher upside, you know, from a production standpoint, on a per-game standpoint. And, you know, that's that's not easy to come by these days, uh, when especially when you're narrowing the starting pitching pool because teams are more willing to use their bullpen and use even relievers to start games. So that moves us to a trifecta of Astros. We've got uh, Josh James, Colin McHugh, and Brad Peacock. Now, in case you're not aware, uh, Dallas Keuchel and Charlie Morton are both free agents at the end of this year, and that opens up two spots in the Astros rotation. Now, it's possible that they resign one of those. It's possible they resign both of them. It's possible they sign somebody from outside the organization. But these are three very talented pitchers, perhaps flawed. Well, definitely flawed. But capable pitchers that you need to keep your eye on. Uh, James was a strikeout machine in the minors. A major prop-up prospect who received starts down the stretch, which might indicate that the Astros want to give him a shot in the starting rotation. I think the fastball is a little straight, but it's got a lot of velocity. Even with a somewhat straight fastball, due to the velocity and due to the quality of his other pitches, I, there is a significant amount of upside here, and you can't ignore the production. I mean, he's he was absolutely dominant in the minors, so you can't simply brush him off. I, at least I don't believe you can brush off a, a pitcher or, or any player who's been that productive in the minors as simply being, you know, he's a fringe prospect. Uh, he, he deserves a look, and as long as he's getting the look, you should keep your eye on him. But he's the most popular amongst the ADP crowd. He's got an ADP of 250.7, uh, so he's the favorite among the three to see some sort of role with the Astros. McHugh had an excellent year out of the pen uh, as a reliever. But his track record is as a starting pitcher. Uh, the graphic came up the other night when the game was on. Uh, he has well over 100 games started the three seasons. I believe it was the three years or four years prior. And he has a 3-7 ERA as a starting pitcher during that time. That's fantastic. Um you know, and I think that that's about what you could expect. If you, if I knew he was starting tomorrow, I would say three seven five, uh, caper nine around nine, pretty good ratios. You know, the whip can get a little high, but I, I think that McHugh is a perfectly capable starting pitcher. He's not the sexiest name on this list. He's probably the least sexy of the three because the fastball is not great. And he throws a lot of, you know, he's, I, I don't want to call him a junk baller because I think his breaking stuff is a little better than that. And I think he deserves a little more credit than that. But he's sort of pitching in reverse. 
and that's caps his ceiling somewhat. I mean, you know, he's he's a pitcher that can give you quality innings. He's not the type of guy that's going to win you the league, but in this day and age, that's that's got value because the starting pitching landscape, as I've mentioned last week, it's just not conducive to breakouts. It's not conducive to good starting pitchers right now. There's just not that many of them. And, you know, there's always the chance that McHugh, having been in the pen this year, throwing less innings, that maybe he carries some of that velocity over into the rotation next year if he does indeed go into the rotation. And if he's going to carry an additional tick or two on his fastball into next year, you know, everything, that, that will help. That'll help, and that will, that will allow everything else to play up. So he's, he's intriguing as well. And then we look at Brad Peacock, who um, had another impressive year out of the pen, but he's sort of limited in his repertoire. He's really a two-pitch pitcher. And, you know, we saw it in 2017 when he stepped into the rotation. He was sort of a five-innings-and-done guy. So quality starts aren't going to be there. The wins might be a little tougher to come by. But it's a lot of Ks. Less than ideal control, but not a lot of Ks. So, I, I mean, to me, of the three of them, Peacock is probably the guy that I would single out as the one that's likely to stay in the pen. Now, that doesn't mean that the Astros feel that way or that they're you know leaning that way. Um, we obviously can't <laughs> tell what the Astros are going to do with these starting pitchers because we don't know. But Peacock is probably the one that if it were if there was uncertainty if I was drafting early and I had to pick among the three I'd probably go James for the upside, then McHugh then Peacock because I think Peacock's got the lowest ceiling as a starter um, which is basically he ends up back in the bullpen that's the reality for all these guys but Peacock's skills are most conducive to that, I think. Last, we've got Corbin Burns. Uh, he was impressive out of the pen this year, but has the chops to start. He was a starting pitcher in the minors, and he's on a team that needs starting pitching, as we mentioned when we talked about Santana. But the issue is, why wasn't he in the rotation this year? Now, the easy response is, yeah, I imagine it was they wanted to preserve his innings. They felt as though they were going to make a postseason run, and they wanted to have this guy available to give them multiple innings out of the pen during the LCS, for instance. Completely possible. I like Burns overall, but I think playoff exposure and the production bump that comes with being in the bullpen might end up having him overvalued on draft day. The ADP stands at 247 at the moment. I don't know if I'm willing to make that investment. Um, you know, I think I would rather have like for instance if McHugh if I knew McHugh was going into the rotation, I might rather invest in McHugh than Burns. And I understand that Burns probably has a bit more upside. It's just I expect that he'll be more expensive. I expect that ADP to climb quite a bit. Uh, I mean, now, and for instance, uh, let's say Jimmy Nelson is on the comeback trail and he looks like he's going to be all systems go. I would definitely rather have him over Burns. So 
I like Burns. I do. It's just he's. I I think the exposure is going to lead to him being a little overpriced. Okay, so I'm going to take a look at power and speed. So I did a little bit of digging, and I mean, as you're all aware, it seemed as though going into this year that the market for speed was very aggressive, and that speed generally was sort of a diluted asset. Uh, Stolen bases have been drying up for a number of years, and there was this movement among the fantasy community to really emphasize and make sure that you get your stolen bases because if you don't get them you know you were basically sunk in the category and you know I've as you've listened to the podcast you know that I didn't necessarily subscribe to that theory so I, I did some digging and you know and then there was the alternative I, I should I should say before I dig into what I found that power is plentiful and you know you shouldn't not that you shouldn't spend up on it but it's just you can if you spend up you it's better to spend up on your speed because the power is more plentiful late yeah and no so the top 10 power hitters had an average adp last year of 37.8 and players inside the top 10 coming from outside the top 150 is zero so, average ADP, 37.8 for the top 10 power hitters. No players from outside the top 150 in ADP. So, if you invested in power at the top of the draft, you got a pretty good return on your investment for what you paid in terms of you know getting top-line power production. Now, for speed, the top 10 average ADP was... and players coming from outside the top 150 there were three so you can see where i'm going with this if you if you spent up on speed and you waited on power you didn't get the top end power production and the guy that did spend up on the top end power production probably had the opportunity to get a stolen basis from someplace else either later in the draft or, or on free agency so, I mean, you know, I, and, I, and I've said this a couple of weeks ago, even when we talked about uh, Trey Turner, VR, and uh, Alberto Mondesi in terms of their, their blind resumes. I will generally take the cheaper option when it comes to that sort of profile. I'm okay with building gradually. I'm aiming to be competitive in stolen bases. I don't need to win the category. And I think... When you try to win the category, you're sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face elsewhere. And there's a lot of there's a lot of volatility and variability in stolen bases. Uh, it depends on situation. You're talking about manager. You're talking about lineup spot. You're talking about organizational philosophy. You're talking about soft tissue injuries. To me, I, I think it's like investing in saves because it, it's it's a category that sort of stands alone. A stolen base doesn't get you batting average it doesn't get you a run it doesn't get you an rbi homers do all that so i would rather invest in maybe a category that's less scarce but gives me more across the board than invest in you know uh, basically one category 
And, I mean, and despite the claims that you couldn't find it, I mean, you look at Malik Smith, you look at Jonathan Villar, you look at Alberto Mondesi, all those guys emerged or reemerged uh, this year. So it, it's not that I don't recognize the scarcity. I do. It certainly exists, but I'm just not willing to chase it. I'm willing to let the category come to me. And we're still living in a world where Billy Hamilton was taken 80th overall in one of the two early mock drafts. So people are still willing to invest and go out there and and get these supposedly high-end, top-end stolen base assets. I don't know. To me, I'd rather zig. I would rather zag. I, I, I don't want to follow what the market is doing in terms of speed. I would rather grab an all-around asset or an elite asset in another category and I'm happy to piece it together 15, 20 steals at a time and then maybe grab later on in my draft a player that I think can steal 40. Um, you know, VR is the player that immediately springs to my mind, but this year illustrated that you probably could find it if you wanted to. Um, if you had to and you know as much as it's easy to say that it's also you know you could have had malik smith in in most 12 team mixers you had the ability to go out and get him for a price that was not prohibitive you know when you wouldn't have had to expend all of your fab to get malik smith um you could have and, and, I mean, Malik Smith is a great example because that's the type of player that you can take last, you know, at the end of your draft if you've got a deep enough bench and just hold and just see what happens. And, you know, plug him in if you need the speed because if he play, even if he plays three, three games a week, you've got a decent shot of picking up a couple of steals. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I just I think that the market has sort of made – a little bit too much of the stolen base scarcity and uh, you know the need to pay up for speed I'm, I'm going the other direction definitely so that brings us to do you trust the process and what I wanted to do here was sort of highlight some players that I think present very intriguing skills and they're players that haven't broken out at this time so They've got, they've got something that they do really, really well, but they just haven't utilized that skill to take their game to another level in terms of fantasy production. And first up, you have Josh Bell, who's sort of starting to look like the the new Brandon Belt, so to speak, because of the plate discipline profile. Uh, you know, he's he's got a very good walk rate at 13%. He only strikes out 17% of the time. Uh, and, you know, he's got the look of a power hitter. He's a 6'4". Uh, you see him in the box. You, you would think that he would hit for power. You know, even just to sort of a first base average level. And he doesn't have the prohibitive park that Belt has. But Bell didn't put it together this year. He's coming off a disappointing 261, 357, 411 slash. And that triple slash is not just bad luck. The batted ball profile is not great. Uh, 19% soft contact, just 33% hard contact. And he's on the ground a little bit too much for a first baseman. He's at 48% ground balls, 1.49 ground ball to fly ball rate. 
he pulls his grounders uh, 48.4% of the time and ends up hitting his flies to the opposite field 43.1% of the time and pulls them just 14.8%. So, you know, the best, the easiest path to power is a pulled fly ball, and he is hitting them to the opposite field three times for every one he pulls. So that's and, and putting that in context, the the fly ball pull rate is 278th among 303 qualifiers. Uh, his fly balls aren't hard hit. The hard contact rate is just 36.9%. So you're looking at a lot of lazy fly balls to the opposite field, which are obviously bad for his bad as well. I'm also not a big fan of the mechanics of Bell's swing. It just it has a certain choppiness to it. And, and I think the wrists look awkward. You know, that's something that, you know, can be tweaked and, and, and made better, definitely. And it might not matter. I mean, there might be a path to him hitting for power, even with some choppiness in his swing, you know, if he can adjust the launch angle. But, I mean, he's expensive, too. He, uh, again, relatively speaking, 217.4. He's going ahead of Justin Smoke. Uh, CJ Crone, Peter Alonzo, Ryan Zimmerman. Those players all have varying degrees of appeal. But, I mean, to me, I would rather have all of them over Bell at this point because Josh Bell hasn't shown anything to indicate that he's going to make the adjustment and hit for more power. And there's a lot of work to do with this profile. It's not as simple as... He needs to raise the launch angle. He needs to raise the launch angle and start pulling his fly balls more. You know, he needs to stop pulling all of his ground balls. It, it, it's a it's a swing change that's got to work on a couple of different levels. Now, the plate discipline skills are good. I don't deny that, and that still makes him promising, but not, you know, 217 type promising. Um, I would be looking to take him later than that. Okay, and that moves us to Max Kepler, uh, who's going off at 277.13. And Kepler and Bell have the same strength. The, it, comes, it comes down to their plate discipline. Uh, Kepler sports a respectable 11.5% walk rate and just a 15% K rate. Uh, so his command of the strike zone is really impressive. 24.9% O swing, 91% zone contact. So those are extremely encouraging numbers. That means he's not swinging at bad pitches, and he is making contact with pitches inside the zone. So he knows what a good pitch looks like, and he knows how to make contact with it. So then you take a look at you pull up Max Kepler's page, and you see the 224, 319, 408 slash, and you say, well, why? There's a couple of different things. The batted ball profile isn't great. It's sort of the... Uh, Aaron Hicks, Carlos Santana profile. The line drive rate is suboptimal. Uh, fly ball hitter. He probably deserves closer to 2017's 276 BABIP than this year's 236. The X BABIP this year was 268. So, yeah, he deserved a little better on his balls in play. Um, so you can expect some improvement there. Uh, but probably not to the level that the K percentage might lead you to believe. So this isn't going to be a guy that's going to hit 300. He could hit probably in the best case like 270. More than like more likely than not, he's somewhere between 250 and 260. 
So <clears throat> if he's 260, he probably needs 25 homers and 10 steals uh, to be a relevant quality asset. He's he's going to have to tweak the swing uh, to generate the right types of contact. That's that's definitely an issue, um, you know, which you can see just based upon the batter ball profile. So then you shift your focus to the speed, and he wasn't promising there this year with just four steals on nine attempts. Uh, that's not a great look, but he's got enough speed to swipe high single digits. Um, when I look at Kepler, I think his best case scenario is sort of a Mitch Haniger, uh, where you know you're looking at like 25 homers, 10 steals, maybe a 270 type season, which is a quality player, and it's well worth a shot at you know near pick 300. And frankly, between the two, I think I'd rather have Kepler over Bell because I think Kepler has to do less than Bell does. I, I think that Kepler is a little bit further along as a major league hitter, which is pretty impressive considering the fact that, you know, Kepler's a, Kepler is, a, I believe he's from Germany. So you would think that he would be a little more raw than Bell at this point. But, I mean, Kepler has displayed outstanding plate discipline despite not quite having um, the level of advanced competition or experience against the level of advanced competition that Bell does have. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in on Kepler um, as a potential breakout candidate for next year. Um, you, know, you need to watch and see what's going on in spring training, see if there's something there with the swing change. But he's, he's intriguing. So that moves the Shane Bieber at 216.7 ADP. Um, so, I mean, this is really simple. Bieber has shown plus control, the ability to strike hitters out, backed by a healthy 11% swinging strike rate, and the peripherals to support a low threes ERA, even though the ERA came in at 4.55. So, how did that happen? You know, how did how did he miss his? How did how did this wide divide between his peripherals and his actual results happen? Well, the primary culprit is the 356 Babbitt, which wasn't entirely undeserved. He had a 43.9% hard contact percentage. Um, Bieber would be tied for first in zone percentage as a pitcher among qualifiers at 48%. And I think therein lies the problem. Um, His greatest strength is his greatest weakness. Bieber being in the zone that much is leading to a lot of strong contact. The question will be whether Bieber can go outside the zone a little more or can do a better job of managing the contact that is being made. Now, of course, there's the scenario where Bieber does nothing, and he, Robbie, raises his way through a sea of hard contact and posts an awesome year. That's in the range of outcomes. But he's SP67 right now. I can get down at that price, definitely, because... Again, there's a scenario where Bieber does nothing and has a great year, and you cash. If he continues to be sort of an ERA bomb without the matching peripherals, you know, you, you cut him loose. And he doesn't cost you that much at SP67. I don't expect that ADP to stick, though. I fully expect him to rise. 
given the fact that he has the impressive K to walk, given the fact that he has the impressive peripherals, and given the fact that the Cleveland Indians have shown the ability to develop pitchers. I mean, they've got another one that's really become a borderline ace very quietly in Mike Clevenger, and people are going to connect the dots and think that Bieber's the next one. And he's already got the peripherals to back it. So I'm fully expecting him to rise. I mean, I would I would bet that he's probably SP45 about, provided he's got a starting role in the Indians rotation. I fully expect him to be that high. I, I don't think there's any way he's going to be anywhere near SP70 in March. Okay, and then the last guy I'm going to talk about tonight is Tyler Glass now. Um, he's much more expensive, which shocked me. Uh, he's at 44th among starting pitchers with an ADP of 166.1. Um, <clears throat> there's obviously high-end upside here uh, in the arm, and last year he took a significant step forward. After spending part of the year as a starter and part of the year as a reliever, his Ks were over 10 per 9. The walks at 4.27, which is significant progress. It's still not great, not where you want it to be, but that's a manageable level for a pitcher with his skill set. He could live there, uh, but you'd really like to see him get down to like 3.75 to 3.5 per 9. And during his time with Tampa, he actually exceeded that. The walks were closer to 3. But the homers were way up at 1.62 per nine. Glasnow started de-emphasizing his fastball a bit with the Rays, and that might be part of the key to unlocking his potential. I do think the Rays are a great landing spot, but 45th is really, really steep for a guy that's been mostly terrible during his major league sample um, and might end up as a Ryan Yarborough clone in terms of what he's going to give you, which is you know three to four innings of long relief, essentially. So it's it's a big risk at 44. 44 is not cheap. Um, I would pass because I still don't think that Glasnow is a finished product. I don't know that he's ever going to become a finished product. But, I mean, if I, I would have these two flip-flopped in terms of where I would be willing to take them or, or where I would expect them to be. I mean, I would think that Bieber would already be up in, you know, up around 50 and I would expect Glass now to be closer to 65, 70, and I, I had it completely backwards. So, you know, I'm obviously in on Bieber at the current price, although I expect that to climb, and I'm obviously out on Glass now at his current price, which is 44th uh, in terms of starting pitcher. Okay, so that's going to wrap it up for us tonight. I am going to be back with Joe Saunders. I will be done talking to myself. <laughs> As of uh, October, I believe we're recording on the 25th, but, you know, give or take a day, given the fact that it's an off, that's the off season. Um, and we will talk to you then. We expect to have the kinks worked out with the anchor feed uh, soon. Hopefully we'll be back on iTunes uh, working shortly. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and we will talk to you soon.